0: And the preacher remembered to unmute herself. So, it helps. All right, we are hearing from the minor prophets. Last week we heard from Habakkuk, um, and today we'll hear, hear from Haggai, which are two prophets you don't hear from too many times. If you are going to look up Haggai in your pew Bibles, which I invite you to do, even if you don't normally look it up, You go to Matthew, go back three books, and you'll almost miss Haggai because it's only two chapters long. It's one of the shortest books of the Bible. But Haggai speaks to God's people after they have come back from exile in Babylon. Israel's a mess. Everything's been decimated, and they're trying to rebuild the temple. And we'll talk a little bit more about the setting and what happens to them. But they're, just to put it mildly, having a hard time. And the word of the Lord comes to them. Here now, Haggai chapter 1, the second half of verse 15 through chapter 2, verse 9. In the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory how does it look to you now is it not in your sight as nothing get now take courage o zerubbabel says the lord take courage o joshua son of jehozadak take courage all you people of the land says the lord work for i Am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit abides among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once again in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with splendor says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. Please pray with me. O Lord of hosts, help us to hear a fresh word from your prophet Haggai, who spoke to your people so long ago, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, is still speaking to us today. Help us put aside every distraction, anything that would pull our attention away from you, so that we might hear with joy what you would say to us today. Amen. Have you ever gotten exactly what you have longed for and prayed for and wanted for so very long, and then it turns out to be nothing like what you expected? You get accepted to your dream college only to spend the first semester miserable and homesick, or you finally get that promotion that you've been waiting for, and you find out that the higher salary also comes with a price tag of exponentially higher stress. Or you retire after a long, successful, happy career, and then slowly and painfully realize that retirement is boring you half to death. Sometimes when God answers our deepest prayers, we find out that the answer doesn't always match up with our expectations. When the children of God returned to Israel after after decades of exile in Babylon, their deepest, most longing-filled prayer had finally been answered. They were home again in the promised land where they belonged. Decades of exile in Babylon had broken their hearts and stretched their faith. For Babylon, the war machine of their day, defeating the Israelites, destroying their temple, and decimating Jerusalem wasn't enough. To completely demoralize the people and to try to keep them from rising again The Babylonians rounded up the best and brightest of Israel, their leaders, their scholars, their teachers, their business owners, and they forced them into captivity, marching them 1,600 miles to Babylon. Mocked and reviled, pressed into servitude, They had to start from scratch in a land that had robbed them of everything they cherished. Their ancestral homes, their promised land, and the temple. The physical center of their covenant with God, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Babylon, the people offered their heart-rending grief to God over and over and over with laments like this one in Psalm 37. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our harps For there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked us for mirth, saying, Oh, sing us one of your songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Oh, if I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. For about 70 years, the people kept crying out to God, translating their grief and their sadness and their anger into prayer and worship, offering their deepest longings and pain to the only one who was going to be able to change their situation, the only one who was going to help them home. And then, finally, something changed. King Cyrus and the Persian army rose up and defeated Babylon. And because they had a less cruel approach than Babylon did, they allowed all of the Babylonian captives to go home, including the Israelites. And not only that, but King Cyrus decreed that they would give back to the people all of the treasure and religious artifacts that the Babylonians had stole from them so that as the people went back home, they would have something to carry back with them, something to start rebuilding a life again. Finally, God had heard their prayer and answered it. They were going home to the promised land, and even better, carrying back their treasures. Oh, happy day. But then reality set in. The people did not return to the Jerusalem of their memories. They returned to a destroyed city whose rebuilding had barely begun due to a decimated economy and a lack of leadership. Everything was still a mess 70 years later. And to make matters worse, those who had remained in Israel who had not been carted off to Babylon, they had moved themselves in to the abandoned houses and taken over the abandoned land of those who had been forced into captivity. And so confusion and conflict arose between those who were coming back to reclaim their ancestral's home and those who had taken over. And so the Israelites' answered prayer of return and reunion begins to unfold into a complex new reality where all that needs to be done and all that was lost create a very difficult tension, which is why God sends this word of reality adjustment and hope to the Israelites through the prophet Haggai. By now, the people have been home for several years, and the reallocation of lands and homes has begun. We can just imagine the conflicts and arguments over that. And the rebuilding of those homes has started, and the people are working hard to establish a working economy, a functional local government under Zerubbabel, who was appointed governor by King Cyrus. And they're also working on rebuilding a priesthood under Jehoshaddak's son, Joshua. But everything's in process. Everything's in the middle of getting better. And as today's passage that we just read reveals, it's the rebuilding of the temple where all of this conflict and difficulty comes to a head. The work on the temple has been stalled out, stuck in the struggle between the shining memory of Solomon's grand temple that once was before the Babylonians got a hold of it, and the current reality of the half-built temple Humble house of God that's standing before them. The returnees from Babylon, they remember Solomon's temple and how gorgeous it was. And they think this rebuilt temple, made out of the ruins, the people doing the best that they can with what they have, they think it's not good enough. The current reality before them simply cannot compare with what they remember. Ezra, who was a contemporary of Haggai, tells us that those who remembered the former temple, when it came time to dedicate just the foundation laying of the new temple, it was supposed to be a time of celebration, and the, the folks who'd never seen the old temple, they were glad something was finally happening. They were on. But all the returnees who remembered and had all that nostalgia built up in their house, they drowned out the celebration with their crying and their lamentations and their complaining. It wasn't good enough. As time passes, the returnees' grief combines in an unhealthy way with rose-colored glasses nostalgia. And it eventually metastasizes into resentment and negativity. And it slows down and eventually stops the work on the temple. And the people are completely demoralized. Isn't it interesting that it's at this point, once they're finally back home and their prayers have been answered, that they stop offering their grief and their longing and their pain and their sadness to God? like they did when they were in captivity, which is the only place where it can be healed and brought to something good. And they start feeding that sadness and that grief and negativity, and it eventually erupts into constant negativity and complaining, and it stops the work of the Lord. As many of us know all too well, complaining is contagious. It's like a virus. And negativity is legion. To add insult to injury, mockery from their critics, their enemies who are watching Israel try to rebuild this temple, they also add in their two cents. Tobiah, the Ammonite, who is one of their enemies, sees what Israel's up to and he comments, That stone wall they're building, any fox going up on it is going to break it down. This is not the kind of feedback you want during a building campaign. But complainers complain and critics criticize. But God is not complaining or criticizing, and God is not comparing the reality before him with the past. The people are doing that all by themselves. The Lord of hosts has another word, a very clear and uplifting and defining word on the temple's rebuilding. Hear it again, verses 2 through 5. He tells Haggai, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say to them, Who's left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now, though, take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all of you people, says the Lord and work for I am with you says the Lord of hosts according to the promise that I made you back when you came out of Egypt my spirit abides with you do not fear this is not the time for nostalgia based complaining and this is not the time to listen to the critics this is the time for clear I'd courage. Now, did you notice, did you hear that God commands take courage three times? To Zerubbabel, the local political leader, to Joshua, the spiritual leader, and to all the people. This is not just a problem of the leadership, and this is not just a problem of the people. They are in this together. They are in this together just as they were back when God commanded their ancestors in the book of Joshua to be strong and courageous. This was right before they entered the promised land, after years of wandering in the wilderness, after they were delivered from Egypt. And Haggai's listeners would have recognized that historical echo. They would have thought of Joshua when God says, take courage. They would have been reminded that they have needed to take courage before in their story, in their history. And that God was with them back then, just like God is with them now. That God is their God and God was their God when there was no temple. Back when they wandered in the wilderness and worshipped in a tent called the tabernacle. And God was their God before there was either a tabernacle or a temple. Take courage. Work. God commands the people through Haggai. But just like in Joshua, neither this courage nor this work will arise solely from the people. This is no pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of tough love. The people will be able to take courage, and the people will be able to do the work before them, as overwhelming as it is, Because, God tells them, because I am with you. According to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit abides with you. Do not fear. To reassure them in this difficult present and to give them hope for the future, God points back to another pivotal moment. In their history, the great exodus from Egypt, another time when God brought the people out of captivity, this time saving them from Pharaoh's hand, even splitting the sea in two and making covenant with all of the people in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. There in the wilderness, the Lord of hosts covenanted to be their God, abiding with them forever. And the newly freed Israelites there at Sinai, they covenanted to be God's following and worshiping people. So God's words here in Haggai remind them that God is still in the business of saving. And that covenant that he made still stands. Looking back into history, not with rose-colored glasses, not with revisionist nostalgia, but with clear-eyed truth. God speaks hope into a messy and confusing present by reminding that people, the people that just as God was with them in Egypt, at Sinai, in the wilderness, in the resettling of the promised land, and in Babylon, God is with them now. God is with them as they rebuild this less-than-ideal temple with this less-than-ideal people. Take courage and work, for I am with you. My spirit abides with you. Do not fear. Or as Eugene Peterson puts the same thing in the message, I am living and breathing among you right now. Don't be timid. Don't hold back. God had been their God before there was a temple. God was their God when the temple was destroyed, and God was their God when this temple was being rebuilt brick by brick, stone by stone. God's presence didn't depend on the temple or how it looked. God's presence depended on the covenant that God had made with them so long ago in Sinai and with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's covenant was to abide with them, to live and breathe among them, to guide them beyond their fear and their complaints and their critics and their limited human imaginations and their faulty, revisionist human memories." God reminds them of their history with Him, of the many times He brought them through hardship to give them courage for the present and hope for the future. The not completed project that was right before them, halfway built temple, it was frightening. It made them think things would never get done. And the more people complained and the more critics criticized, the more fear got a hold of them. But God reminds them, I'm in charge of this project and I will see it through. In verses six through nine, God tells them to remind them, he's the one in charge, he says, I shake the nations, I will bring treasure and prosperity to this temple. And it will look different, but I will still be there. And most of all, through this temple, I will bring you shalom. We've heard that word before, shalom. It's usually translated peace, but as so often happens when we translate from a foreign language, it means so much more than one English word. God's shalom means not just peace, but well-being and security and wellness and wholeness and restoration. A complete contentedness in God. Centuries later, Jesus came to bring God's shalom to us. To bring salvation in the midst of another confusing and conflicted time. Of course, when Jesus came, it was Rome who was in charge, not Persia, not Babylon. And there was a never-ending temple project, a building project that was going on when Jesus came. But Jesus reminded the people that God's presence wasn't limited to the temple. That as valuable as the temple had been and was, its opulence or even its existence was not the central thing. In Jesus Christ, God was right there before them, abiding with them, living and breathing among them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, Jesus told them. But his listeners could not think beyond the categories and the expectations and the structures that they knew. For them, the temple was the place where God and humanity meet. And Jesus was telling them, no, I am the place where God and humanity meet. They could not see in him that he was the answer to their prayer. He was their Messiah. But he wasn't what they expected. God answered their prayer It didn't meet their expectations. And there was a lot of conflict and confusion and difficulty in between. Because of that, they couldn't accept the living hope that was standing right in front of them. Sisters and brothers, we still live in a confusing and a conflicted time. Sometimes our lives seem like a half-built mess, and the work too hard, too much, too overwhelming, and the critics and the complainers out here and in here way too loud. And we get distracted, and we get off track, and nostalgia for the good old days gets in our way because we compare the reality of the now with all of its mess and all of its difficulty with some idealized thing back there. Or we compare the reality of what's before us with our expectations, with what we had dreamed up in our head, and it gets in our way from seeing what is. To put it in the words of the great songwriter, Billy Joel, the good old days weren't always good, and tomorrow's not as bad as it seems. Not because of any philosophy or any pull yourself up by your bootstraps or any positive thinking, but because God is with us, and he has a bigger vision, and he has a plan, and all of this is his project he will see it completed he will see us through so here again this word whatever you are facing whatever in your life feels incomplete not like what you want it to be not like what you expected and looking terrible compared to an idealized past whatever you're facing that seems overwhelming, hear this. Take courage, all of you, and work, for I am with you. According to the promise I made you when you came out of Egypt, according to the love I showed you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, my son, a love that overcomes even death. Oh, my children, take courage. For my spirit abides with you. You are not alone. Do not fear. I am with you. Sisters and brothers, there is hope in our history. In every time God has spoken peace into your chaos or sent the right word through the right person at just the right time, When God has loved us through our most unlovable moments and helped us to learn a new way, shown us a new perspective, perspective, given us a second wind. Every comfort, every blessing, every forgiven wrong, every fresh start, every grace in every breath. This is the hope in our history. Jesus Christ, our living hope who was and is and is to come. And nothing, not the work before us, not the idealized past behind us, not the unrealistic expectations in our head, not the critics and not the complainers, none of it can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. And all of God's people said, amen. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, as we face uncertain days, and as we struggle, and any time we feel overwhelmed, remind us of our histories with you, just as you did the Israelites as they struggled to rebuild the temple. Remind us of all the many times you have saved us, when you have carried us, when you have reached into our chaos and brought out good. Help us to find the hope in our history, the hope that is Jesus Christ, our living hope, who will never leave us nor forsake us. In your name, we pray these things. Amen. On this day, it may be that you have not taken an opportunity in your life to publicly say that you want to follow Jesus Christ and to commit your life to him. If so, in just a moment, we will be singing our final hymn, and you are welcome to come forward. Or if you would like to become a part of our congregation where we as one family are seeking to take courage and work at what God has called us to do in this time, in this place, you're welcome to come forward. Or if you'd simply like to pray with me, it would be my honor and blessing to pray with you for whatever is on your heart and mind. And for all of us, may we take courage and know that God is with us. Let us stand together and sing.